All right, well, we want to welcome you to our, our new Sunday School class here on the 1689 Confession of Faith. Uh, Desmond, Will, Pastor Rick, and I will be co-teaching this class, and uh, this is going to take us through August. So we're going to be in the 1689 for a while, as it has 32 chapters. Um, we'll try to cover roughly a chapter a week for the most part. That'll work out, except for this week. Um, and uh, some other chapters you can combine, they're a little bit smaller, so we're, we're looking forward uh, to diving into this. And as I prayed, what, what our, our prayer is, is that, you know, our, our feet would go even deeper in the gospel and in the promises that we have in God, that we would recognize this firm foundation upon which we stand on the word of God. Um, this morning, I'm just going to give a general introduction to the 1689, and then we'll begin making our way through chapter one this morning, and we'll finish up with that, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday. Uh, not going to give a ton of history on the 1689. Pastor Rick spent the last two weeks um, kind of doing that, setting the stage for uh, the 1689. But I do just want to bring out a couple highlights that Pastor Rick uh, mentioned just to kind of refresh our minds in this. As Pastor Rick mentioned last week, the 1689 has its roots in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And that confession was written up in 1647. And it was used as the basic framework for constructing the 1689 Confession of Faith. Uh, the Westminster Confession, as you probably are aware, is still a confession that is used by many uh, Presbyterians as well as other uh, churches. Uh, so the framework for the 1689 came from the <coughs> Westminster Confession. However, there are differences between the two confessions, and so some mod modifications were made in bringing about the 1689. And those modifications came from the Savoy Declaration, which was published in 1658 by the Independents. Uh, the Savoy Declaration was a revision of the Westminster Confession of Faith that reflected their independent form of church government such as we would have, an independent form. In other words, that each church has the authority to govern itself, um, distinct from our Presbyterian brothers who would have uh, a larger oversight um, over the churches and making declarations and rulings about those churches. We would see that each church is to function autonomously, um, given leaders within each local congregation. And so that's kind of how the independence broke away wrote up the Savoy Declaration. And so the Baptists, as they looked at the Savoy Declaration, they found their views closer to what they believed the scriptures taught about church government. And so they took some of that document as well and modified that confession, especially uh, in the area of baptism. <clears throat> and then they also drew from the first London Baptist Confession of Faith. Maybe you've wondered what... What's the second London Baptist Confession of Faith? I didn't know there was a first one, but Pastor Rick kind of hit on that a little bit last week. The first London Confession was written up in 1644, so they took some things from that. If you read through that, you'll see that it's constructed more of just um, articles or paragraphs, about 53 articles or paragraphs, just statements, that seven Baptist churches in London held to um, during that time. So they're looking at that document, the 1644 London Confession of Faith. They're looking at the Westminster Confession of Faith. They're looking at the Savoy Declaration, taking all of those things into account, and the 1689 
uh, confession was birthed. But actually, it was really composed and published in 1677. So sometimes you'll see um, 1677-89 London Baptist Confession of Faith um, because it was composed and published by particular Baptist churches of England in 1677, and then it was subsequently adopted by a national assembly of particular Baptists in 1689, giving it the nickname, nickname that is often used for it today. So, and just, just for clarification also, when we say particular Baptists, let me just kind of briefly explain what that means. Particular Baptist specifically refers to what we believe about the work of Christ in the atonement. That, that is, that he particularly died for the sake of the elect. Okay, so particular Baptist, the contrast of that would be general Baptists. Perhaps you've heard of that before, like the general association of Baptists. Um, so general Baptists would hold to that Christ died generally for all men, right? Particular Baptists would say that Christ died only for the elect. Now, this is really, this is really interesting. This confession was also adapted by churches in the United States. In fact, this confession was the confessional statement of the church or association of every one of the 293 delegates who gathered in Augusta, Georgia in 1845 to organize the Southern Baptist Convention. Every single delegate of the Southern Baptist Convention at its inception held to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Now, you may have heard of a ministry, or you may not, called Founders Ministries. Tom Askell is the one who oversees that. Tom Askell is part of the Southern Baptist Convention. His church is a Southern Baptist church. It's over on the west coast of Florida, actually. The reason that Tom Askell started this ministry is because most people think that Baptists are Arminian by birth, so to speak. And what Askell was trying to help people to see was in 1845, every one of the delegates who were involved in starting the Southern Baptist Confession held to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. And so Askell started the ministry called Founders Ministries to show that our foundation as Baptists has been in accord with Reformed theology. And it's over the years that we've drifted away from that. Arminianism has come in and swept through the Baptist ranks. And so now you have this resurgence back and people are looking at it and saying, you're trying to bring this Calvinistic thought into our Baptist roots. And we're saying, no, the roots have always been in accordance with Reformed theology. And so that's an interesting, that's an interesting study in, in and of itself. Um, but that, that's pretty amazing when you think about it. I mean, you think about how many Baptist churches there are today and how few actually hold to Reformed theology. Um, and you see, so you see that, that sweep across the Pastor, landscape. Yes? Would you say that there, that, uh, there are more Presbyterian churches that are Reformed than Baptist mm -hmm. churches? Okay. Presbyterian churches by, by nature, even though, you know, so we're Baptist churches, but they've held to their roots, so to speak. Um, but Baptist churches really haven't. One of the great blessings of um, Southern, or, or Southern Seminary, where Al Mohler is, is the president, is 
that's kind of the hub from which pastors are sent out into Southern Baptist churches. Well, when Moeller got there back in the 90s, he started to turn that school around. He basically went in and wiped out the faculty and brought in guys who held to Reformed theology. And so now you're seeing this resurgence of Reformed theology within Baptist ranks and particularly within the Southern Baptist Convention because of Moeller's influence of going in there. And he went, when he went in there, he was in his 30s. He, he walked in. I mean, the guy's brilliant. I mean, just... <laughs> He walked in, he was like 35 or 36, I think, when he became president there at Southern Seminary. And he just went in and just kind of cleared house, brought in solid teachers. And so now, 20 you know, or so years later, you're starting to see the fruit of that as, as you get more of Reformed theology in the Southern Baptist ranks, trying to get it back, as Askell has tried to do, to its roots, to the, to the 1689. So yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really... Interesting study in and of itself. Okay, I spent a lot of time on that. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Just one more quick question. Yes. Um, yep. When, when did Tom Askell do this? When did he start? Yeah, when did he start the Founders Ministries? That's a good question. I want to say sometime in. Will, do you know by chance? Maybe you could look that up. I want to say sometime that it was founded probably in the 90s, sometime, but there already had, that had been movements that way prior to Askell. Well, and the reason why I was asking that as to like how recent or how distant that what you were sharing was is because I know him and his brother Bill. Yeah. My pastor Malone. Yes. Altogether, they were at Southwestern Seminary in Texas, which is where my ex-husband and I were. Yeah. And that's how I came to know the Reformed faith because awesome. my pastor, Tom, Bill, all of them, yeah. um, and a Ben Mitchell, um, mm-hmm. we were meeting on Saturday nights because the, the Baptist churches, we were just like all dying yes. <laughs> you know, with Southern Baptists, but so the name of our church, when it was decided to uh, constitute as a church, yeah. after we met and met and it kept growing and growing and growing, um, was a great <laughs> 1982 is when it was yes, Founders well, Ministries. We were there in 80. Okay. And we gotcha. started attending. And um, it, it, just to say that, yes, that was how I came to, to know of the Reformed faith. That's, that's interesting. Church and 11 years later and all yeah. that kind of stuff. But the youth camps were led by Tom and Bill Askell and awesome. Kansas. That, that is really cool. What a great story. Thanks for sharing that. That's a nice little bit of history mixed in there. Yeah. Because, because on the campus, they were presenting yes. reformed faith and, and professors, there were, uh, Steve, somebody, um, anyway, was an actual professor there and he was shooting it out into the classroom <laughs> yeah. under the radar, but there right. were people on the campus and like I said, we Grew to where we decided we needed to come to the church. Right, right. Really that, awesome. that, oh, I know what I was going to say. Uh, Heritage Baptist Church. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Even though it was reformed, yep. it was named that way by yep. Pastor Fred because the seminary students, if they went to something that said reform, would not get accreditation for attending yep. or not accreditation, but an okie doke about where they worship. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> the intentionality behind that name, too, Heritage. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. amen. 
That's good. That's good stuff. George. I always thought to be Southern Baptist, you had to have a Southern draw. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right. So good, good stuff. Um, all right. So the 1689, also the doctrinal statement that Charles Spurgeon used um, at, uh, at his church. And um, that's, that's a fascinating study in and of itself. If you want a really good biography, you want to learn more about Spurgeon, um, read the book The Forgotten Spurgeon by Ian Murray. That, the Lord used that to turn on the light bulb for me to understand Reformed theology. Because I always loved Spurgeon and his evangelistic zeal, um, but I wasn't as um, friendly to his, uh, or I didn't even really know that he had Reformed convictions which I didn't at that time until I read the book, and then I was persuaded by the scriptural references. Okay, so before we launch into the confession itself, some may ask, why do we hold to a confession of faith at all? Um, Isn't the Bible sufficient in and of itself to express clearly our confession of faith? And I want to first answer that by saying absolutely, The Bible is sufficient uh, for that. But because many people misinterpret the Scripture says, uh, or or the Scriptures, as Peter says, to their own destruction, um, it's necessary to articulate clearly what we believe on various doctrines that are found in the Scriptures. And normally the confessions arose when when you look at how confessions were birthed, they arose out of the need to be more defined in what we believe and to be able to clearly see and respond to heresy that was arising and being taught within the church. Unfortunately, some argue against the legitimacy of confessions on the basis that confessions of faith undermine the sole authority of the Bible. And I would say that if we had a view like Rome does where we said it's scripture and tradition, then that would be a valid statement. But if you look at Reformed confessions, that's not at all what we're saying. We're not seeking to say that, yes, this is what we hold to, and uh, it doesn't matter what the Scripture says. That's not at all what these confessions um, were meant to do. Uh, Perhaps you've heard people say, no creed but the Bible, right? And what they mean by that is we're not going to hold to anything except this book. And again, to that, we would say amen. <laughs> we would say absolutely. We, we believe the Bible. And while I completely you know, agree with the angle that people come from when they, when they say that of, no, this is, this is our sole soul and final authority, it's necessary to define that more succinctly at times. And I want to give you an example of this. This is a statement taken from the Jehovah's Witnesses publication, Let God Be True. And here's what they said. To arrive at the truth, we must dismiss religious prejudices. We must let God speak for himself. Our appeal is to the Bible for truth. Now, if you didn't know that was from the Jehovah's Witnesses, you would look at that statement and you would say, Amen. But do we disagree with Jehovah's Witnesses? <laughs> yes. Okay, So we can't just make these blanket statements and say that we appeal to the Bible for truth without defining what we believe about what the Bible teaches. So hopefully you can see 
why a confession to our loyalty to the Bible is not enough. We have to explain what we, what we mean. And, and when men take the very words of Scripture and they twist it to their own destruction, again, as Peter says, to promote heresy, to teach falsely, when the word of truth is perverted as error, then a confession can be extremely helpful in drawing lines between truth and error with a public statement. Okay? That, that's the benefit of it. Now, if we were to give to the confessions, again, a place of equal standing with the scriptures, then we would undermine the Bible's sole authority to regulate the church's faith and practice. But that is not what we're doing. It was never the intent of those who drew up those confessions. They readily acknowledged the unique place of the Bible, and they recognized it. That they recognized that they were fallible men who were trying to put these things down. Um, and you'll see as we get in, into this that the confession doesn't try to make anything truth that was not truth already, simply a declaration about what was already stated, nor does it propose to bind men to believe anything which they're not obligated to believe on the authority of Scripture. Um, so with that introduction, I'm going to let Spurgeon have uh, the final word on this introduction because I thought what he said about the 1689 Confession was really helpful. He says, This little volume is not issued as an authoritative rule or code of faith whereby you are to be fettered or bound, but as an assistance to you in controversy, a confirmation in faith, and a means of edification in righteousness. I thought that was a great Spurgeon statement, like mm -hmm. almost everything Spurgeon says. <laughs> yes. So, all right, I'm going to leave that introduction as sufficient for us. Let's go ahead and make our way into the confession itself now. And again, everyone should have one of these handouts. If you don't, they're on the table in the back there. And if I can have somebody read for us the first paragraph, I have it numbered here for you, so hopefully it's easy to follow. Chapter 1 that we're dealing with today, the Holy Scriptures, and paragraph 1. If somebody would like to read that for us, and then we're going to kind of work our way through it. Yvette, thank you. The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. However, these demonstrations are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and his will that is necessary for salvation. Therefore, the Lord was pleased at different times and in various ways to reveal himself and to declare his will to his church, to preserve and propagate the truth better and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world. The Lord put this revelation completely in writing. Therefore, the Holy Scriptures are absolutely necessary because God's former ways of revealing His will to His people have now ceased. Amen. Will mentioned uh, early at the, uh, at the beginning, he said, didn't we just do a whole class on this, uh, on this chapter? Yes, we did. So it's not going to be as exhaustive as that, uh, as that class. So, um, all right, so I, I want to walk through this through this first paragraph here. And what, what I want you to notice here, hopefully what jumps out to you is the necessity of the scriptures. 
Uh, this, that first sentence really says a lot. I want to read that again. The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. So any who would say that the confession itself is trying to usurp the Scriptures would have that statement nullified immediately upon the first sentence of the 1689, where it says the Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving faith. I want you to look at a few passages that the, uh, the confession notes here. One is Luke 16, verses 29 and 31, which says, But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay, so again, this, the confession here points back to the necessity, the sufficiency of Scripture, that it must be proclaimed, that it must be taught, that men must believe it in order to be saved. And then a very popular passage here, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, if somebody would like to read that for us. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete for every good work. Okay, so again, just kind of highlighted that aspect of the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation and that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So it's, it's sufficient, right? We don't need other things in order to know God, to know how to be right with God, and to know how to grow in the grace of God. The scriptures are sufficient for all of those all of those things. Now, this next sentence in the confession, it really lays out the necessity of Scripture regarding salvation even more clearly when it says, the light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. However, these demonstrations are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and His will that is necessary for salvation. And one of the passages cited here is very familiar to most of us, if not all of us, in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, if somebody can read that for us. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a great passage again uh, that hits on you know, what the confession states here, that the light of nature and the works of creation and providence, that they so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that men are left without excuse. There's another uh, passage that the confession doesn't um, mention, but goes along well with Romans 1. You can just jot it down if you want. It's Acts 14, verses 16 and 17, 
where it says, In past generations he, that is God, allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Okay, so the, the testimony here, the, the person on the witness stand, so to speak, is the rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, uh, food, satisfying your hearts with food and, and gladness. So that's another helpful passage that reiterates what Romans 1 talks about. So again, nature is sufficient to give all men a clear understanding of God and some of his attributes. However, it's not sufficient to bring men to a saving knowledge of the truth. And this is where you have the real difference between what is commonly called general revelation versus special revelation. And a good place to see this is found in Psalm 19. And you see that reference there under footnote number two. Go ahead and turn there with me. Psalm 19. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. And if I could get somebody to read verses 1 through 6, and in verses 1 through 6, you're going to see what's referred to as general revelation. Uh, This is God revealing himself generally to all men. And then in verses 7 through 11, you'll see the specific revelation of God through his word. So who would like to take verses 1 through 6? Will, thank you. And then who would like to take verses 7 through 11? Lucy, thank you. For the choir... The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Okay, so there's the declaration of God generally revealing himself to all men, and then in verses 7 through 11, you see the specific revelation of God through the word. Want to take that, Lucy? Thank you. Okay, so that's a great passage to understand the difference between general revelation, which God gives to all men, and specific revelation, that which he gives through his word and which is necessary for salvation. Now, this next sentence in the confession says, uh, it's about halfway down, therefore, the Lord was pleased at different times and in various ways to reveal himself and to declare his will to his church. And you can see that the scripture cited here is Hebrews 1.1. I've included also the beginning of verse 2, which says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. 
So the point of this passage, again, is that God had to speak to us specifically, not just generally, as he does to the entire world through creation and the things that have been made, as we saw in Romans 1, Acts 14, beginning of Psalm 19. If we were to be saved, we needed God to speak to us and for him to give us the ability to hear what the Spirit says. And so the writers of the Confession uh, try to clearly lay that out and show the distinction between that general revelation and that specific revelation. And then the next sentence goes on and says, to preserve and propagate the truth better and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world, the Lord put this revelation completely in writing. Now, a couple things that I want to draw out from this statement in the confession. Uh, first, again, the scriptures are necessary for the preservation of special revelation. Uh, again, we, we dealt with that in our bibliology class. You can go back and listen to that if you'd like. Um, but, you know, what we should see here, again, is that word of mouth fails to accurately communicate all the necessary details of a situation, uh, primarily because you know, we're sinful, we forget, we distort things. Um, however, the written record is far more accurate, and because God inspired men to write it, it is more than accurate, it is perfect. Um, I, I love the way I've just started to go back through Luke's gospel, and I love the way that Luke starts off uh, his gospel. I mean, it just entices you to read, doesn't it? Uh, it's just wonderful. I want to read this. Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. All right, so there's the, the reason, the purpose clause, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you already have been taught. It's necessary for us to write these things down. Now, not only was it written to preserve, preserve the truth of, of God's revelation, uh, the confession tells us that it was also written to propagate the truth. So it was written to preserve the truth, but it was also written to propagate the truth. Uh, the inspired apostles obviously could not be everywhere at once, but their writings could get around much more quickly. The apostle Paul's words to his young disciple Timothy illustrate this well in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. Watch what he says. I hope to come to you soon, All right? So there's that face-to-face, -face, me being with you, speaking to you, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the confession was picking up on that reality of, um, and, and when you think about Paul in particular, he's locked up a lot, Right? But as he says in 2 Timothy 2, I'm bound, but the word of God is not bound, right? 
And so the word of God is getting out, even as he sits there in his prison cell and God ordains it, and he says, here, write a bunch of letters to the churches, right? So he writes all these, all these letters, they're dispersed, and they, and they get around. So even though Paul wasn't able to be with many of the believers face-to-face, his writings were, and the truth was being propagated through the writing um, of, of Paul. It sounds like uh, he's equating the, the, the word written, the words that he wrote, yes. being face-to-face. Exactly. I mean, it's the same, it's the same thing. That's exactly I mean, right. not really yeah. about it, but it really is in terms of the truth that's spoken. Exactly. The <laughs> truth would be no different if I were to write this down for you right. or stand with you face-to-face. Yeah, absolutely. I concur. Okay, and then look at this last sentence in the, parag- uh, in the uh, confession here in paragraph one. Therefore, the holy scriptures are absolutely necessary because God's former ways of revealing his will to his people have now ceased. Okay, the scriptures are absolutely indispensable in order for us to know God's will. Look at what Peter says here that the confession uh, references. 2 Peter 1, verses 12 through 15. Somebody want to read that for us? Sure. Thanks, Will. Uh, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I I think it right as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminders, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to, at any time, to recall these things. Good. I, I love that last sentence. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, all right, no more face-to-face, you may be able at any time to recall these things. All these things. And so here, Peter long gone, and we get to pick up Peter's writings, and we get to benefit from them as the inspired uh, word of God. So Peter writes this down so that these believers and believers who follow them will know the will of God. And mark this very clearly. The word of God reveals the will of God. God is not speaking in any other inspired way or giving revelation outside of his word and in accordance with it. And listen, this is where people get away from God and start following after their own lusts. It's not uncommon for people to say, well, I believe that God is telling me to, and then you fill in the blank. And it's totally counter from what the word of God says, right? I really believe this is what God wants me to do. And we can pick up the word and we can say, wrong. (laughs) Right? We we have an objective standard where God has revealed himself to us. And we say, no, that's that's wrong. Right? And we can see our own hearts as well. The Lord confronts us and shows us how we should do things, how we shouldn't do things. So... If, if you don't believe that God has spoken fully and finally in this book, then you're going to open yourself up for all kinds of deception. And listen, it'll come in very subtly into the church. Be very careful when you read things and you read people saying, this is what the Lord has told me. Okay? 
You better have an open Bible right next to whatever, whatever that is. So the, the scriptures are absolutely necessary to guard us from that er- error, but also to build us up in the faith and to give us that hope. I love here what Paul says in Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And then here's the reason for it. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So the encouragement comes from the scriptures. That's our ultimate source of encouragement. Okay, let's move on here. Um, The next two sections I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, either of them, because uh, they're pretty self-explanatory. I don't need to go through the canon here, so to speak. Um, But you can can see there, um, paragraph two deals with uh, the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God written, consists of all these books, Old Testament, New Testament, Um, Notice what it says at the bottom of that paragraph. All of these are given by the inspiration of God to be the standard of faith and life. So again, confession reaffirming that the word of God alone is the standard of faith and life. Um, And then going into paragraph three, uh, the books commonly called the Apocrypha were not given by divine inspiration and so are not part of the canon or standard of the scriptures. Therefore, they have no authority for the church of God and are not to be recognized or used in any way different from other human writings. Shots okay? Fired. Shots fired, absolutely. Yes, and that's, that's in response. So again, just if you remember through our study through the, uh, uh, the Reformation, word of God is brought forth, proclaimed. It's getting into the language of the people. Rome is, you know, chasing trying to chase everybody around to stop what's going on. Council of Trent in 1545 through 1563, one of the things that arose during that council, actually in 1546, the Roman Catholic Church officially declared some of those apocryphal books to belong to the canon of Scripture. Now, why did they do this? Well, when you go back and you read the books that they say were inspired, which God left out of his church for 1,500 plus years, it goes along with the things that they were trying to teach. Purgatory, uh, the giving of money, all those things. When you look through them, you say, I totally get why you wanted this in your, in your canon. Uh, this is just, it feeds your power. And it keeps the word of God out of the hands of the people. It keeps them enslaved. Now, these books, these apocryphal books, were written approximately between 400 B.C. and the time of Christ. They, they do have some historical benefit. I mean, when you read through some of the things, it, we don't want to you know, say, because Rome included them, get them out of here. We don't want to have anything to do with them. The Confession, I think, handles this very well. It says, we should treat them as we would any other human writings. We wouldn't put them on par with the word of God, but they do have some historical things that we can learn from them. So uh, I think the, the, uh, 
that confession handles that extremely well. They're not to be recognized as inspired, therefore they ought to be treated as such. Okay, I'm going to stop there for today. Next week, Lord willing, we'll start at paragraph 4 and we'll finish because I won't have any introductory material to, uh, to go over. Okay? And then, uh, yeah, like I said, for the most part, we'll be in a chapter a week uh, going, going forward. Okay? All right, so I'll, I'll stop there for today. Any, any questions, comments? Yes, Jeremy. Would you mind trying to give 30 seconds on the idea of the general versus specific revelation as it relates to say, peoples that do not have the gospel, like, say, the remote island of whatever, right? Yeah. So if they don't have the specific revelation of the word, yep. what about them? We got to... I know get, it's a big can of worms. Yeah, yeah. We got to get the word of God translated into their language and get it to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, God owes no man further revelation than, 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 than what he has given generally. When we understand the reality that all men are born as enemies of God due to our nature, no man is seeking after God, no man is going to be able to say on that last day that this is unfair, uh, because man by nature hates God. Uh, man is not seeking after God. Um, so that, that's, that's the reality of it. I think when people ask that question, they come at it from the faulty premise that um, well, they didn't have the opportunity, and, and our, our response from Scripture ought to be, they didn't want the opportunity. They, they, man by nature hates God. If anybody has a desire for the one true and living God, it's a work of grace in that person's heart. Um, so, you know, because people could say, man, even when I was young, I had this desire, you know, to know the Lord. That was a gift of grace, even before your conversion. Um, uh, of God using that to, to draw you to himself. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not um, unfair of God to not get the gospel out uh, to everyone. But, you know, you, you recognize along with that, and I was being serious when I said we need to get the gospel translated into their language, because you read in the Revelation that every tri uh, tribe, tongue, people, and nation, um, are, there's people being ransomed from, from each of those. And so that, you know, Reformed theology affects so much. It affects greatly your mission. It says, wow, man, here's, here's a tribe of people that don't know the Lord. Yet I read in Revelation that there's, there's going to be people from this that are going to be around the throne. We've got to get the word of God to them. So... No man cannot, but even those tribes hidden in the forest, etc., etc., that they've discovered. What I remember being told is that there is a, there is somewhat an given in a, a man mm -hmm. a knowledge that there is at least something higher than them. Oh yeah. Which is why. And all of these tribes that have not received the word of God, yep. they still have a, and it was in the confession, yep. that nature 
Yes. And there's a, a sense of something greater and bigger yep. than them, which is why you have the totem poles or you have these yep. things carved out of palm trees or something yeah. that they give offerings to or stuff like that. Yes. No, they don't know the true God, yep. but they do know there's something besides the human flesh. Absolutely, and, yeah. And that, they're responsible yeah, yeah, they're, they're, the law is written on the heart of every man in Romans 2. I think Paul lays that out you know, pretty clearly, that the Gentiles who don't have the law, the written, the written law, are a law unto themselves, their conscience-bearing witness. Um, so, yeah, they, they have... It doesn't eliminate the need no. for those that have been saved to want to bring the truth. Absolutely. But there is yeah. a Oh yeah, definitely. That he is there. Yeah, there, there truly is no such thing as an atheist. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, if you believe that there is, then you have to go against the word of God. Yeah. Because the scripture says that every man knows. Uh, they're going to be without, without excuse. Yes. So, yeah. So, good stuff. All right. Let's finish there and head into the sanctuary. <clears throat>